Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today I'll be talking with Matt Kennard, the head of investigation at Declassified UK, and we're talking today about the problems and the challenges that we face. We're living in a society where the media isn't as free as we'd all like. We live in a country where democracy isn't as we'd all imagine. What are the challenges and how can we resolve this issue? Who do we vote for? Who governs us? What are our real choices? Enjoy. But let's talk about the, the, the status that we are in. I mean, this, this might not be something that people think affects them directly, such as the cost of living crisis or such as not being able to pay rent or not being able to feed your children uh, nutritious, nutritious uh, foods when, when they're not at school. But surely, living in a society that at least claims to be democratic, that at least claims to live by values of justice, of human rights, of equality, one should expect at least that one has a say in how societies run, the future of society, the, you know, all facets of, of the society. But evidently, that's not the case. And particularly when it comes to who governs. And this is something that I, uh, I, I saw your recent clip in which you talk about the lack of choice rather than the choice, the lack of choice that we have right now um, in that we only have, well, one of two, which are extremely similar uh, with a slight variance in, in aesthetics. And, and by the way, this is something that I used to comment on American politics. Uh, going back 10 years ago, I remember tweeting about how ultimately after hundreds of millions are spent on election campaigns and on and advertising uh, elements and all of that, we end up with a choice between bad and worse. And that truly is, is not democracy. How would you encapsulate all of this? How would you describe well, where we are? Well, I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that um, this has always been the case. It's got worse recently, but this has always been the case because you have a establishment, an entrenched power elite in this country that have been in power effectively f uh, with variations and ad additions for a thousand years. We never had a sort of a revolution that ripped up the social fabric like they had in France. So the Norman invasion a thousand years ago, they divvied up the land, they created barons and baronies. They still exist. So you have this entrenched elite. They've had. There's obviously been different waves of progress in terms of democratization, um, religious freedom, all these different things. Um, we have parliament, which is elected, but essentially that establishment, that entrenched elite, is still in place. And a lot of what we think of as democracy, what uh, what you're describing, is window dressing. So it's a powerful way to keep people pacified, because. If you think you live in a democracy, you don't think you need to take action to democratize your society because yeah. you're already there, right? You're already there. And that illusion is very easy to maintain most of the time because uh, Labour, Tory, duke it out. It's always one of those two parties. Um, and the Labour Party is much more important for the establishment to control because obviously that's the one that might get out of control because the Tory party is, is the party of the establishment. Um, and they've done very well at controlling the, the Labour Party until basically there's two leaders have come along that have disrupted that um, cosy consensus and establishment consensus, which was Michael Foote, who was leader from 1980 to 83, and Jeremy Corbyn, who was leader from 2015 to 2020. You obviously had 
progressive leaders and progressive prime ministers in terms of Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson, uh, Callaghan, but they were all effectively, they, they did do some good social work, especially Attlee, famously with the NHS and social housing, different things. But Attlee was an imperial uh, monster in many ways. He fought a horrendous imperial campaign in Malaya and other places, Malaya, to shore up British rubber interests. And that's kind of the left extreme. Harold Wilson fought a, or backed the Nigerian junta, which was destroying Biafra in the late 60s, which was the worst humanitarian crisis of its time. And actually the, the, uh, the Wilson government was kind of unique, even within the West for the, for the extent of the support it was given the Nigerian junta, and that was to shore up BP and Shell's interests in, in Nigeria. So I think that it hasn't been, uh, there hasn't been a time when we've had a real choice in terms of fundamentals. Um, but I do think that we have entered the time now with, with Starmer and obviously Blair before him, where the difference is even smaller than it was. And you're seeing it with Starmer. And I think it's an amazing revelation for people because people, the, the liberal analysis of our society is that if we get the Tories out, and they've been telling us this for 13 years, right? If we get the Tories out, it's all going to be okay. And that is the myth that they promote. And people, a lot of people believe it. And of course, I want the Tories out. They're awful, awful people. But they, but th that's how far the liberal analysis goes. It doesn't go further. It doesn't go further and say, actually, the problem isn't just the Tories. The problem is oligarchy. The problem is if we get Labour in, they're going to do basically the same thing. And Starmer's being explicit about it. He doesn't hide it. He said that we won't even get rid of the child benefit Exactly. Cap. And he exactly. was nicknamed Sir Kid Starver. So it's so Student explicit. Fees, Student fees. Um, everything. Yeah, and then, everything. And that's domestically. So I think domestically he'll be basically the same as Sunak. Um, maybe a slightly better on some things, slightly worse on others. I think on foreign policy, uh, which is even more of a consensus, there's even less differences between the two major parties throughout history, uh, throughout the history of the 20th century and up to now, um, I think that they'd probably be worse. If you see, because they have to go that extra mile to prove their establishment credentials on issues like I Israel, which is a, a major terrorist state and apartheid regime. Um, he has uh, he has given interviews where he's basically dismissed the findings of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, which are the two major human rights groups in the US and UK and have called Israel an apartheid state. I mean, it's been obvious for a long time, but they came out recently and said that he's dismissed that. So I think it's, um, I th my take now is that all these things that have been implicit and buried in the system and haven't had to be exposed are now being exposed and people are seeing it. The Labour's move um, rightwards. Um, is it, uh, do you agree with the, with the argument that this, um, w became an actuality with the arrival of Blair and in 1997, or were there signs of this uh, before that? It's difficult, isn't it? I think that a major moment... Uh, because, I mean, yes, one could even argue that, uh, especially after 9-11, that Labour policies abroad particularly, but, but even at home, uh, they, they were in competition as to how further right they can go with the, with the Tories. And on many, many levels, they went even further than the Tories rightward. Yeah. I think that a major moment in this whole story that we're talking about was 1983 when Michael Foote's Labour wiped out in that election. And, you know, that there's that, that the establishment created this narrative that you can never win with progressive policies because people don't like them. And that it was a very, it's a very powerful tool that they use to like 
cudgel people over the head. And his manifesto from 1983, which was quite radical in terms of, said they wanted to disband NATO and, and different things. Um, they, they called that the longest suicide note in history. That's how it's gone into history. So, uh, and, but I think that that's why I think the 2017 election with Corbyn was so important because again, they were saying the same thing. They said, he, and we all thought he was gonna wipe out in 2017. And then they got the biggest swing to Labour since 1945 on a really, well, it wasn't a, it wasn't a radical program, but it was, it was moderate social, social Democrat sort of um, provisions, uh, uh, wanted to stop arms to Saudi Arabia and Israel, um, which in any kind of uh, functioning democracy would be, uh, would, would not Quite be a Quite a reasonable thing yeah. to think. <laughs> which uh, like a, 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 one of the worst dictatorships in the world and an apartheid regime called by the major human rights groups. So, uh, but I think that that really scared the establishment in 2017 because I think that that myth is important to promote because the opposite is true. And if the truth gets out, then it's dangerous because the truth is people like progressive policies. They want schools to be well-funded for their kids. They want hospitals not to be privatized and given over to American corporations. They don't want their government to be selling arms to dictatorships that are destroying neighboring countries. They don't want these things. So when they get offered it, um, they generally, they, they will vote for it. Um, and that's why they can't get offered it. The whole system rests on the fact that you can't get offered that. And I think that a 2000 and- And whenever anyone speaks of them, they're- ridiculed and they're described as being absolutely fanciful and uh, and unrealistic what i mean you've mentioned establishment now three four times what are the interests of the establishment what does the establishment stand for what 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 is it trying to gain that's a very important question um and it's a good one to kind of um, unpack because there's obviously different elements of it. One is the domestic constituency, um, which uh, I'd say a lot of the the, the forces that have been arranged on the state and the government are corporate ones here. So, for instance, BAE Systems um, is a major, uh, uh, the major arms company, the British one. Uh, it dwarfs all the others by quite a huge amount. And actually, the interesting thing was. I did interview Jeremy Corbyn last year, and I was asking about the Saudi um, alliance with the UK, which goes back obviously to the founding of Saudi Arabia. Um, and he said that the biggest rebellion he ever had from his Labour part, from the party while he was leader was when he put forward a motion to stop all um, uh, uh, arms and other support for the Saudis while they were bombing Yemen more than anything else. So he said that shows the degree of penetration, particularly, and he named BAE Systems, has of the Labour Party because BAE are the major um, uh, profiteer from from the from the alliance. It's, uh, I think forty percent of our arms go to Saudi Arabia, so it's hugely profitable for BAE. So that's one example. So that's one element of the of the sort of uh, uh, pressures on the establishment, the elite. The others, I mean, corporate, and then there's also just the the entrenched. Um, power, the uh, the landed gentry, all the, the royal family, all these different elements that um, have been in power place for a long time and do not want to get displaced. And Corbyn threatened a lot of, uh, I mean, Corbyn in many ways was the worst parliamentarian from the House of Commons and the House of Lords, the worst nightmare for the establishment. I don't think there's anyone worse that they could have, they could have got because there's other people that have been good domestically, but he, as you know, has a history on the foreign policy stuff, which 
um, uh, for me is is the kind of red line for the uh, for the establishment. And I'll, I'll, I'll go on to that now because you asked what the establishment is. There's also then the foreign influences. What are the foreign influences that are pressing on the uh, British state and the British government? The main one is the United States. We are a the 51st state effectively, and that's not um, hyperbole. We have tw over 12,000 US troops deployed permanently in the UK across 11 so-called RAF sites. We have the NSA, which is uh, the National Security Agency, the intelligence agency, which effectively runs GCHQ's site in Cornwall called GCHQ Bude. We have all these other embassy projects and what I assume intelligence link projects um, uh, like the British American project, um, uh, the, there's others as well, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, um, all these bodies that are operating here and pulling the political system into an Atlanticist position. And that's uh, why Corbyn was such an outlier because he was an anti-imperialist um, uh, and which means the main imperialist power in our world is the United States. And there's hardly anyone in the Labour Party like that. That's not a coincidence. That's because of a long range campaign that's been fought by the US government in, in this country and obviously around the world as well. They've always folk been much more concerned about the left here and around the world because the, the, all these kind of stratagems came up during the Cold War and they didn't want uh, Europe to go uh, communist. Um, so they, they they had all these ways of cultivating the left into pro-Atlanticist positions. So you have that. There's also Israel as well, which, again, with, with the Corbyn um, uh, uh, leadership of the Labour Party, it really was revealed how powerful the Israeli state is here. Um, and there was an amazing documentary about Al Jazeera, actually. Yeah, about the lobby, the, about the, the lobby. Israeli embassies lobbying within the Labour Party. Yeah, and also just, just really outrageous. Which no one commented on, no, no one paid attention to. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, the funny thing is there was there was one scandal that broke from that that became big, which was Shai Massot, who was one of the, uh, uh, I don't know what his position was um, within the embassy, but he was a diplomat. <laughs> in inverted comma, uh, quote unquote. And he w was recorded saying he was gonna take down Alan Duncan. Alan Duncan was um, the uh, was a was a minister in, in the government. He uh, The funny thing is Alan Duncan then released a book called, what's the name? Anyway, it's a memoir about his experience at the time uh, within government. And it, a lot of it dealt with his targeted, the targeting that happened from the Israeli embassy of him. And he said, there's one line in that which was never reported. I did a story for Declassified about it where he says, he's, he's talking to the permanent undersecretary at, at the foreign office and he says, I told you, like the Israelis think they control the foreign office and they do, exclamation mark. And you know, so that's, and not one newspaper reported that. Can you imagine if that was Russia? If that was a foreign minister, a former foreign minister saying in his diaries that Russia controls the foreign office. Now, and a Tory one at that. Um, so yes, yeah, so uh, so that Shai Massot story was on the front page of the Daily Mail. He was eventually expelled from the, from the government. But that's kind of how these media, how the media covers for for these different interests, because people get that one scandal and think, okay, well that's over now. But actually, there was a lot more in that uh, in that documentary and a lot more in Alan Duncan's book about the, the sort of generalized control. You'd that like to think, you'd like to think that something like this and this. I mean, just so that we don't make, uh, you know, this discussion about this particular episode, but this is a manifestation, a very clear manifestation of a deep-rooted problem because this is a matter of national security, if there was any. If there, I mean, if 
anything that would deserve the name a risk to national security, this would be it. Yet no one bothered to cover it, no one bothered to talk about it, no one bothered to follow it up and see whether it still remains. It's, uh, it's quite, you know, quite odd. It's crazy. I mean, because the character in Alan Duncan's book as well. So he was minister for the Americas eventually from 2016 to 19. But at that time, Theresa May was prime minister and she wanted Alan Duncan to be minister for the, for the Middle East. And the Israelis, or conservative friends of Israel, which don't reveal their funders, but is very closely linked to the embassy. We can say that for sure. But there's, there's I, I assume, a lot more close links with the embassy. But they contacted, so this is all in his diaries. He says they contacted Theresa May's um, aide and said, you can't have Alan Duncan as minister for the Middle East. And they won. They, the, the, the prime minister folded. So he says in his book, this is crazy. You have the prime minister, but he calls it entrenched espionage. So, but so yeah, so that general story about how the Israelis are, are, are controlling the foreign office very, very explicitly and, and, and in the memoirs of a Tory minister, barely covered, barely covered. Um, tittle tattle was from, the, but, but, but it, it, it's quite scary. So then you have, so that's the other part of the establishment is the foreign influences exerting. I mean, I think, my, my my take on it, having looked into this stuff, is the United States is way above everyone else. Israel's is up there, definitely. Uh, the Saudis, uh, UAE, um, like we are, we are very very tightly linked with the Gulf dictatorships. It's quite troubling that um, these regimes are, you know, they're using the UK as their playground in order to fight it out. I mean, I was reading somewhere recently that um, the blockade, uh, the UAE Saudi blockade against Qatar. Um, there were millions poured into PR companies here in London uh, in order to vilify Qatar and to, um, you know, to expose whatever problems it, uh, it manifested and the such. Um, and that went to overdrive just before the World Cup. Um, so we saw the kind of negative campaign run by the BBC and onwards um, as a result of this. And all of this, it leads to um, the absurd reality that we're seeing foreign governments, essentially foreign governments, regardless of you know whether they're friendly or, or otherwise, but foreign governments fighting it out here in the UK. And we're affording that simply because I would assume uh, because of financial interests. So this is this I mean and if, if if true, it's an absurd, absurd reality. Well and you I totally agree. And and you see the reaction when when people are fed information about Russia's influence, which does exist, but it's actually quite far down the list. But people, but there's been a mania about that. People, the idea that Russia might be interfering in our democracy is 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 crazy to people and, and, and they, it needs to be shut down immediately and, and there's, the media is obsessed with it. But they barely touch the ones that are much more serious, like the Saudis, like the UAE, like um, Israel, like the United States. There's barely anything on the United States. I did a story recently where we got the figures for how many troops are here. That's never been covered in the in 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 the British media, not once. The figure, which you, for a sovereign country, you would with a with a free press, you'd imagine that the number of troops that were occupying or or stationed here would be of interest, or at least be mentioned once. But uh, but it's it's assumed that we are part of this imperial project, and and we're just a. a, a aircraft carrier for the United States. So yeah, it's really, really crazy. And the, but the Saudi thing is, uh, their, their money is everywhere, especially in the media. I, I did a, well, 
I did a couple of tweets. I want to do some stories on it now. But for example, the, the Saudi regime, five different parts of that regime fund uh, uh, the, the Financial Times and the Financial Times produces propaganda for them. You can see it on there. They call it pay, paid for content or whatever, but it's produced by the Financial Times. Never, ever been written about anywhere. The Independent is part owned by the Saudis, has loads of Saudi propaganda. Um, the Guardian uh, had, when when MBS first came into uh, power, he, they had a they ran a whole camp, a campaign of adverts for him. Really amazingly, amazing stuff when when you know like how, how the mythology that we tell ourselves is maintained in the face of all this. So we apparently we went to Iraq to take democracy and freedom to Iraq while we are supporting one of the most repressive dictatorships in the world in Saudi Arabia. The other thing is, <laughs> I mean, it's it's so bananas when you start looking into this and doing doing the journalism about it, which is um, which is actually looking at evidence. Is since 1964, um, the uh, the British, the UK military has had 11 senior soldiers embedded in the Saudi um, armed forces in the Sang, Saudi Arabian, um, um, uh, uh, what's it called, um, the Saudi. Uh, National Guard, sorry, Saudi Arabia National Guard, which is called, which is all, also called the White Army, and it's taken from tribes which are loyal to the regime. Uh, the the personnel are so they've the UK have had eleven soldiers embedded in Nasang since nineteen sixty four, explicitly to help keep that dictatorship in power by force. Um, those soldiers, those British soldiers, take their orders on an everyday basis from Saudi commanders. None of the, what I've just said has ever been reported in a British newspaper since 1964. How is that? That's insane that you can have, uh, we are, we have, we have people on the ground and they're stationed in Riyadh and they have been for what, what is that? That's near, that's 60 years and we've never, and not one newspaper has ever reported it. And that's that kind of, and that for me, that is how this whole system is maintained. It's not through active lying now. Weren't we up in arms only what three four years ago about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and weren't we all pointing the finger at MBS were we not what's going on no one is talking about us anymore no no and one is talking about us anymore it's amazing how that happens like uh how how you can have this spasm of outrage and then the, the power interests that we're talking about just they managed to just dull it very quickly and yeah I was thinking about that actually on the walk up here because the Khashoggi thing uh, like was unusual because I understand how the system, they don't care if the Saudis are destroying Yemen and creating one of the world's worst humanitarian crisis with a man-made famine and hundreds of thousands of kids on the brink of starvation. That's kind of par for the course. When you touch a made man, which is what Khashoggi was, he was a Washington Post columnist. That's unusual. And that's a crisis. <laughs> so that's why they had to speak and out. the way they did it, the manner in which they did it. Unbelievable. So I mean, brazen. I mean, so befitting of the weirdest Hollywood films ever mm. but well, that saw... happened as we watched we saw the place we we read about the tools that we used we read about how you know his body parts were flown back or dissolved or whatever it's like we were in 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 fantasy land yet it actually happened and to an extent it was reported but then nothing and again now we talk of saudi arabia and we talk about the regime, and we talk about other regimes um, in a manner in which all of this doesn't really matter. It's just... Well, another another salient case, which was uh, the 10-year the anniversary, anniversary was yesterday, I think, was the Rabah massacre, massacre in Egypt. 
unbelievable. Unbelievable. A thousand, over a thousand people killed in one morning Human of bloodletting. Human Rights Watch called it uh, the worst massacre in modern times. Yeah, it, uh, unbelievable. Crime against humanity. If that had been done by an official enemy, we would be having, we'd have a day off uh, of work every, uh, uh, about, uh, to commemorate. I mean, it was unbelievable uh, day of bloodletting. Um, incredible uh, when you read about it. But yet, not, on, not only was it like, but it barely it barely even made a mark at the time i remember i mean and it's just been completely forgotten and and sisi who was defense minister at the time is now obviously the dictator and president and as the i mean it's now egypt's in its worst human rights crisis in its modern history now they say that's a amnesty quote um and that's all backed by the uk and the us the first ever democratically elected president of egypt was killed well, yeah, was killed. Go, go figure. It's you know. By the way, I, uh, just so that this goes on record, I spoke to um, two MPs a few weeks back and suggested to them that maybe raising a question in Parliament uh, or writing something or issuing some EDM or the such, just commemorating the tenth anniversary of this. Um, one outright said no, no, that 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 that's not going to work, and um, he wasn't ready to put his his name on that. And the second said, "Let me get back to the party and see what you know whether that's that's feasible." And needless to say, it wasn't. It's uh, you know all of this. It's uh, it's bizarre. It's surreal. It's absurd. But the most worrying thing about it, it's real. That it is surrounding us it is we we all looked at the papers yesterday we all scoured the websites yesterday and we couldn't find a trace of the mention of the Rabia massacre we all read what's happening between us and the saudis in terms of trade deals and arm deals and the like and we we almost never hear about the story that's had us all on tenterhooks about what happened to this prominent journalist in the Saudi consulate, no less, in Istanbul. And ultimately, we have this reality. And the thing is, you, again, I bring you back to the term establishment. And we've been talking about the media. But surely, surely, Matt, the media is full of young journalists who are, you know, truth-seeking, who have the right kind of attitude in their hearts. They want, they love their job. They want to do the right thing. How do they get controlled? How do they get silenced? Well, that's a very interesting question. I don't think there's any um, straight answer to that because it's such a, a insidious system because it, we don't live in a dictatorship. So you're not working in a media system where you are told what to write in a direct way. But propaganda and ideological control of a society has to be much more sophisticated when you don't have those tools. Uh, if you want to enforce your will. And I mean, I had a personal experience because I started out, I was one of those young journalists who wanted to do good journalism. Um, and then I came out of journalism school and I didn't know where to go. Um, and I got a traineeship at the Financial Times. And um, I saw how it does work. It's not, it's insidious. It's, you slowly start becoming, you join that thought process because you, it's very difficult to go through the whole of your career thinking differently to everyone around you. So it's a very natural human response is to adopt the value system and the 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 uh, the style of 
journalism in this case, but other other trades, the same thing that, that everyone around you is doing. And you don't notice it. So I, I, I found myself uh, replicating the sort of establishment media ticks of like, um, I don't know, for example, when you talk about Saudi Arabia, you don't say US-backed dictatorship. But when you talk about Hezbollah, you say Iranian-backed militant group. So that, that that's a very specific way, but that, that operates across the board where you're just replicating the sort of state propaganda, but in a, in, a, in a way that you're not even aware of. So I think that's how it happens, number one. And I think the other thing is there's not the infrastructure in place for people to have a normal life and do good journalism. Uh, so whether people make that conscious decision or it's sub unconscious, I think it's mostly unconscious, but people who are in a newspaper or in a in a place where they see these different power interests making uh, having an impact on journalism. They're, they also they've got a mortgage, they've got kids. What do you do? They need to be careful. They need to be careful, and 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 not everyone has the uh, wants to take risks, and that's why I always say with independent media, we need to the most important thing, the game changer, I believe, will be when we have an infrastructure where people can live a normal life. There's not, it's not risky. It's not, um, you can, you can get a mortgage. You can go and live uh, somewhere nice with your family and, 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 and have a, and, and be doing journalism, which is what, what we tell ourselves, even the establishment media tells themselves journalism is about, which is taking on power, revealing truth, not replicating propaganda. I think at the moment we haven't got that. We've got quite a exciting alternative media in the UK, which which we didn't have maybe 10 years ago. And a lot of that was spurred by Corbyn because a lot of places got a lot of interest um, because the establishment media was just so obviously uh, biased against him that people were looking for other outlets. Um, that's died down a bit. But again, it's the finance thing. The way the system works is it squeezes you into these little places where <laughs> if you don't want to get funded by uh, corporations and you obviously don't want to get funded by the British state where like where do you go yeah they're the ones with all the money um, it's so. similar to the, to the concept of justice that we have this independent fabulous um, um, world worldly example of a justice system but anyone who tries to knock on the door of, of, of lawyers and soliciting firms and the such realize that you have to be rich you have to be rich and especially when the government moves time and again to cut legal aid from those who actually need it, you realize that this is becoming more and more of an exclusive club. So justice isn't really, you know, what it says on the tin, that it's for all and everyone's equal in, in the eyes of the law. Actually, um, if you have money, then maybe you can attain justice. But if you don't, you really, your chances are quite limited. And, um, you know, I, I was reminded as you were talking about uh, about elements of the media, I was reminded of um, also another scene, which used to be something which we took immense pr pride in. I know that I personally was was part of that scene back <coughs> in the late eighties, and that's the students' activism scene. I remember my first protest and vigil were regarding South Africa and the apartheid regime, and getting my teeth sunk into real political activism back then. But now. I mean, the, the, the university campuses, which I, for instance, and I'm sure you, yourself and many, many others used to venture every, every single week, you know, in order to talk about stuff that students, young people were interested in, talk about Palestine, Israel, talk about, talk about authoritarian regimes in the Middle East, talk about democracy and freedom in, in its real terms. Those universities and campuses aren't available anymore. And in fact, we had the spectacular incident of um, a freely elected NUS president 
who won by a, a landslide uh, being sacked because of 10-year-old tweets when she was 17 years old. Um, in support of Palestine um, and sacked by virtue of a decision made by a non-elected panel. Things are getting grimmer, correct? Yeah, I mean, yes. And that's I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It's bizarre because things are getting grimmer, but the resistance is, you don't see it in a way that, I mean, I remember, to go back to the student activism, I remember during the war in Iraq, I was a student at Leeds and it was vibrant. It was huge. Like everywhere you went, there was it was Palestine and uh, Iraq and and all these different issues. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's died down a bit, and I, and I think that the situation is much more critical now in terms of. And I think that that, that, that my my take is that this is gonna that kind of pressure builds up, and if it doesn't have a sort of political outlet, which it doesn't, and it's not you're not seeing it like that, it explodes in um, civil unrest, like we saw the riots in 2011 yeah, in Tottenham. We did. I think something like that's gonna gonna happen again, but bigger and be more generalized because they're squeezing and squeezing and squeezing, especially the poor in this country. And I think that a lot of people have put their hopes on a, a Labour government changing things. When I think a year into Starmer, which he probably will win next year, people are gonna be like, okay, well, this guy's doing the same as the Tories. What do we do now? And there's no outlet for it. The other scary part of it is is this i mean several civil unrest is not always a bad thing to be honest i mean it would it's good to because it kept political um solutions can come out of that often but uh, the other thing is it does it's a ripe ground for right-wing populists and you're seeing that around the world because they have a simple message as well the left are kind of nowhere now in terms of connecting with working people it's it's quite scary. I mean, and the right come with e easy things like it's all the fault of uh, Muslims or immigrants or Polish people or whatever. It's very simple for people to say, well, all my problems are that. That's great. Whereas the left has got a more sophisticated thing. I also think, I've just written a book about this, that the left needs to refocus on corporate power. Um, I know that's a big subject, but before the war in Iraq in the 90s, um, with rampant, uh, at the end of the Cold War, rampant capitalism. And obviously the corporation is this kind of major economic instrument of capitalism. They, it was running rampant and there was a major backlash against basically corporate rule, which was being enforced. There was a, the riots in Seattle at the WTO meeting. There was a Zapatista uprising in Mexico, which was very important against NAFTA, the free trade agreement. Um, and that kind of all got lost with the war in Iraq, which is, which was, made sense it was a uh, it, it was important to focus on trying to stop that war but none of the issues that were, were that were exercising the left at that in that time went away uh with the war on terror they're all still there and that's kind of what you're seeing now i i, I believe the corporations have just uh there's very very few spaces left in our society where you can escape the co corporate rules so universities is a very good example they've taken over every part of universities now and it has an insidious effect of taking over every part of the media. If you look at the Guardian's website, half of it's got corporate logos on. Um, so I think that we need to kind of push back against corporate rule and and because they cannibalize the state and we don't have a state. We have a state which, as you, we've talked about, is working often for foreign government's interests, uh, but it's also working for corporate interests, which we're told is there's an adversarial relationship between the state and the corporation, but that's a fiction. They work in, in hand in hand. One of the most common questions I'm being asked, and this is going to snowball, I, I know because we've been here before, and that is um, in 13 months' time, 14 months' time, we're going to have the elections. Probably, if not earlier, 
but let's assume that things go smoothly for the current government and that it's December of next year when we'll have the general elections. Assume the general elections are going to be held next month. Who do people vote for? I probably shouldn't say this as a journalist, but I, I, I always voted Green before Corbyn, uh, and then I voted Labour. I wouldn't vote Labour again. I mean, uh, it, I, I, it's easy for me because I don't live in a, uh, a constituency, which is a, that's the other problem with our political system. It's just I've never had a vote which mattered. I've always lived in a safe Labour seat, so it's literally never mattered. So that's why I vote Green. Um, I would vote. I think Green. I, I think Green's the climate change is the major issue of the day really as a species if we want to in my opinion but, um, but you'd agree that uh, vote for the for green in most places is a lost vote it's not going to end up with the greens winning yeah but i think that voting labor is a lost vote you might as well just be voting that i don't this is what people always say to me you're helping the tories by by criticizing labor i'm saying my point is that it doesn't matter if labor get in because they're going to be the same as the tories and they are if not Stars, worse, if not worse, if not worse because they all seem like it's a Labour government, like it's a progressive exactly. government. Exactly, well, this is, and that is totally true. And be... that's the other facet of this is that now with the Tories, you have the liberal establishment at war with them, and they have been for a long time. You know, like these mainstream war criminals like Alistair Campbell, um, um, uh, people like James O'Brien, the sort of liberal establishment that have a massive reach. They're at war with the Tories. All, uh, everything they do, they they hold them to account. As soon as Labour get in, that will all disappear. So you will have that huge power centre that will just stop criticising the government. Um, and that, that will have a major impact. They will have be freer to, to, to do bad things. Um, obviously, the right will, will, will be hammering them, but they'll be hammering from the right. They won't be hammering from the left. So, yeah, I think, I, I, I think that... Uh, I, I, my I, my advice is don't vote Labour, but but I I I understand people's desperation and and there's no easy answer. That's the problem. But because we live in a system which is an oligarchy which does not allow us to have a proper choice, and the proper choice has to be, uh, as you say, a vote that effectively is meaningless uh, in most nearly I mean, every they, place. There used to be the Lib Dems who uh, called for uh, proportional representation rather than first past the post. Um, and that used to be something which many saw as reasonable, but they've they've abandoned that. So there's there's very and and the Lib Dems also used to be for the you know free university education, and they ab abandoned that. So um, in a way, it's 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 like uh, it's like there is no no choice. It's like there is no choice, and that's the essence of what in your book what you're arguing. To, to, to basically make people aware of that the fact that we seem to have, you know, you go into a supermarket and you see 15 variants of cheese doesn't really mean that you're absolutely free to make a choice on which to consume. And that, I think, is, is the important point. And, um, and that, you know, we, we talked about uh, the various elements of, of our society which have, which have been dulled, which have been um, sanitized which have been negated, uh, they're, they're not part of any kind of, of change anymore. And that's, that's what's worrying. I mentioned, for instance, the, uh, the university scene. I mean, that, that scene used to be vibrant. That, that scene is arguably one of the biggest factors around the world that brought down the apartheid regime. That's how powerful it was. And that sector was one of the most vibrant when it came to the Iraq war. I was one of the leaders of the anti-war movement. And I remember the school children leaving their schools and hitting Westminster Square and absolutely bringing the entire square to a standstill. And those were people of 14, 15, 16 years old. Now, you know, they're in their 30s. 
I wonder what they're doing. I wonder what they're thinking. That scene um, was something that created uh, a, a great inspiration and was source of great hope, uh, which unfortunately now we don't have. Is the scene similar across Europe? Yeah, I don't. I know more about Latin America. I think that Latin America, if you're on the left, is the place that has had the most success in terms of getting liberation movements into power. Particularly, or if you look at the uh, governments like of Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, Mexico, now, um, like all across the the continent, um, there's been these uh, liberation governments elected it's kind of it's interesting how why latin america has become the kind of center of it but i think there's so much repression in other places from the imperial powers middle east particularly you know i mean it's impossible for people to rise up because there's so much power back in the regimes there um foreign powers i mean the arab spring was quite an interesting occasion because you saw how 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 closely related to the imperial powers these regimes it was a are. window it was a window through which we saw the real essence of the of the region and the real emotions of the people and that window needed to be shut down as quickly and as brutally as possible by 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 the you know the powers that be whether whether local regional or international but i do think that we have i mean that event was so momentous that and obviously it has been closed down in the short term but i think the long-term impacts of that will be felt. oh the like, mark is indelible yeah totally well, it's like that i can't remember what the what chinese leader it was but someone asked him like in the 80s or something what what was the impact of uh the french revolution and he said oh, we don't know yet <laughs> time will tell so that, that kind of idea that the, these things play out especially in the arab spring there's something obviously started that, that, they, that they they put back into a bottle in the short term, but uh, I'm sure it will. I mean, some I people fear it will explode. I mean, that word that you stopped at, I fear it will explode because the first round was peaceful and it was remarkable for that. I fear that if there are lessons learned by, uh, by the young, by the revolutionaries, by the nations, is that peacefulness doesn't work. I fear that to be the cause and therefore explosion, I feel is an apt word in this case. Yeah. and. They are, uh, it's the, what they call the resource curse, isn't it? When unfortunately for the people of that region, there's, they've got oil. So they've, imp it's been important that the, the imperial powers have had, had those, those, those resources under control. And the best way to control them is to have satrap dictators who just do what they're told and funnel the money out to the, um, Iraq's a, a good example. I mean, the Iraqi petroleum company was run effectively. It had, its main office was in Oxford street um in uh before it was nationalized in the late 60s uh, and uh obviously in egypt we talked about the backing of the us and the uk the reason the uk backs the cc dictatorship so heavily now is because of bp's interest in produces 40 percent of uh, egypt's gas bp so underneath all this is is so in in the arab world it's um, it's just it's horrendous um What's I mean, it's, it's 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 odd. Well, it's not really odd, but but let's assume. I mean, let's say, in the the whole scheme of things, it's odd that if someone were to, uh, you know, dispatch I don't know twenty quid to a needy family, let's say in Syria or in Yemen, uh, they would be called by their banks, they would be shut down, they would be. But for corporations dealing in to the tune of tens of billions. Uh, making profits to the tunes of I don't know how many absurd billions every quarter. Um, it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely fine. You mentioned, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about the, the the people of the Middle East. 
Now, obviously, we have since the the shutdown of the Arab Spring with the uh, advent of the massacre in in Rabah, we have the resumption of migrant boats off the shores of North Africa and the Eastern Mediterranean all the way to to Europe. And now, only yesterday, I was uh, listening to um, to the BBC News. Um, telling of only yesterday, I believe, I don't know how many hundreds of migrants tried to make the trip across the Mediterranean, across the channel uh, to the UK, bringing the total to around 16,000 for this year alone. We're still, you know, in August and uh, very little mention. I mean, there was a mention two days ago of the, the dozens who lost their lives off the shores of Greece, Italy. And as well as over here, people from, you know, from desperate countries, people desperate for a safe haven, um, fleeing persecution, fleeing war, fleeing famine, fleeing uh, economic depravity, which we were elements of creating and willing to risk their lives, willing to risk their lives, which tells of how horrid the conditions they're trying to flee. Are because they're willing to put their lives and the lives of their loved ones, even their children, at risk on these metal dinghy boats or whatever, um, trying to to reach us. Yet uh, we only tell the story of uh, of how these are seen as criminals. They they're, they're in the same bracket as people who've broken the law. They are illegal immigrants, and therefore housing them on barges um, riddled with bacteria and viruses and the such seems to be acceptable. At least that's a story that we're, you know, that we're hearing, or the kind of narrative that is that is being told. There's something that's deeply wrong, and we need um, we need a, a reformation. We need uh, something akin to what's happened, um, which we read across history, whereby people stood up and said, "Enough is enough." How is that done? You need to get rid of the elite, basically, because the, all the all the things you're talking about, the demonization of these desperate people, the fact that they're fleeing often awful conditions that we've been involved in creating, all these things, they are promoted by an establishment because they, they want people to fight. They want the people at the bottom to fight each other because it stops them looking at the top. You know, it was it's quite interesting. I, I saw it for the first time in real time after the financial crisis in 2008. I don't know if you remember, but after Lehman, after Lehman collapse and stuff, there was like, there was all this, Bank, banker bashing in the newspapers and it was all about Fred the Shred I can't remember I think he was a head of RBS but you know like these they, they, and this was in the Sun the Mail all these and then in real time you saw when the austerity government of the camera of Cameron Osman came in it all became about benefits fraudsters and it was in real time they stopped talking about the bankers and even though this this crisis was obviously was still the result of the banking sector they moved it on to benefits and everyone started hating benefits uh, claimants uh, or, or um, uh, European, uh, Polish people who were, who were, who had come over, um, Muslims, you know, like this, this is the, as old as capitalism, you divide and rule, you make people fire much, you make us hate the And it migrants. created the premise for Brexit and it created the, the, that kind of narrative. That yeah. We and I think that what has to happen is we have to just, uh, we have to create new ways of communicating on a mass scale with people because if when you have Rupert Murdoch in control of the best-selling newspaper Sky News whatever it is these right-wing oligarchs that have no interest in 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 actually 
doing what they they say they do, which is giving news and information to the people. That's not their interest. Their business is, you know, that's what understanding people need to come to. Then you're not going to get any kind of um, any kind of idea of how things work amongst people, and they're going to be very susceptible to demagogues who tell them it's it's uh, it's it's your neighbour down the road who's claiming benefits, or whatever. So I think that we need to, my um, my obsession is about just creating a new media because I think that is the fundamental thing. And actually, the interesting thing is. I interviewed Rafael Correa, who was a president of Ecuador from 2007 to 2017. Amazing um, progressive reforms they enacted there, barely covered anywhere. But in some some people say that they that will be seen as the most um, sort of promising of all the pink tie governments. They did amazing things. Interviewed him in Brussels because he's now in exile there. I interviewed Evan Morales, the president of um, uh, uh, Bolivia from 2006 to 2019 at his house in the Amazon. Um, and I, I, was, I was speaking to them about what do you think is the biggest, because obviously they've succeeded. They've got democratically elected progressive governments. Uh, what is the biggest obstacle to progressive change? And they both said the, corp, the corporate media, uh, the fact that um, we are, we, and they were hammered and still are hammered by the establishment media. It's a bit more explicit in, the, in, the, in Latin America because it's usually just like the newspapers are owned by two oligarchs. There's two newspapers and there's two competing oligarchs. So it's very clear there. But it happens. It's the same here. Um, it's a bit more sophisticated, but the same sort of um, dynamics are at play. And I think that uh, I, my take is that they're right. I just think that if you have that, Corbyn was a good example. We saw what we had a, the whole of the media class against Corbyn, who was just trying to do some mild progressive reforms. Just maybe uh, I don't know. National Education Service stop arming a apartheid regime. Simple stuff. Uh, but he was made into a monster and that included the guardian you know that included the the left extreme of our mainstream media they arguably on the anti-semitism campaign were, were the were the they've kind of led that one so so i think that for me that was a really clarifying experience seeing it here happen here in that it's so hard to fight if you have the whole of this powerful information system ranged against you, how you, he was kind of we have no infrastructure for someone like we had there, there was no, he was alone just getting hammered from all sides. So yeah, I think that we need a, a we should all focus all progressives, um, all people interested in truth because it's not just about politics. This is about truth. What we've been talking about today are truths that no one sees. Truth is lost in this corporate. Um, in this system run by corporations and run uh, run in the interest of foreign states or the establishment truth is lost because truth cannot be expressed if there's all these powerful interests trying to suppress it so we need to create a media that can circumvent it. it's not an easy not an easy thing to do because there's so many obstacles there's one newspaper actually in mexico i used to live in mexico which is a mass tabloid called la jornada which it does really good investigative pieces is read by millions of people and it's kind of inspiring to see that i was thinking if you could have that here we kind of did have it before my time but in the they say that the daily daily mirror before murdoch bought the sun or soon after he changed he bought the sun in 69 and i think the 70s was a it was still doing some good stuff but then became a tabloid like the sun but the daily mirror was where pilger made his name john pilger um, one of the greatest investigative journalists of his of his time, and he was doing front page investigations and great stories revealing criminality by the government and and around the world. Uh, that's all been knocked on the head, um, and we need to revive that. Um, I don't know how you do it. I mean, that, but this is a conversation we should all be having. But that's my take. I think that uh, I think that once we sort that out, 
then other things will follow. But it's a, it's a big task because you're talking about forces which are so strong. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt.